What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I'm Turner. I'm in the studio with Rosie. What's up? Hey, what's up? Hey. And Rachel will not be with us tonight, unfortunately, as we record. Yeah. But uh, what do you know, man? Hey, did you know that they found a colony of ants with no queens, no males, no offspring, comprised entirely of non-reproductive females that live in a Disused nuclear bunker in Poland. <laughs> Amazon, like Amazon ants. <laughs> yeah. Well, Remember the Amazon women that couldn't procreate? And they, no. You never seen the, the story? Oh, it's an old, was that a Wonder Woman story? It was something like, yeah, it was some kind of. No, I don't watch cape movies. Oh, right. Whatever. <laughs> I'm the best. But yeah, anyway, so it said the colony is supplanted by ants falling through the hole in the ventilation, which can't escape. <laughs> so it's so weird. It said. Uh, oh, I thought maybe the nuke, uh, nuclear plant made them <laughs> like sterile. and. Oh, I don't know. But it says for the past several years, a group of researchers have been observing a seemingly impossible wood ant colony living in, in an abandoned nuclear weapons bunker in Tempelfo. Poland near the German border. Hmm. Completely isolated from the outside world, these members of the species something um, have created an ant society unlike ed- anything we've ever seen before. The Soviets built a bunker during the Cold War to store nuclear <laughs> wemper- weapons, sinking it below ground and planting trees on top of, of it as camouflage. Eventually, hmm. a massive colony of wood ants took up residence in the soil over the bunker. There was just one problem. The ants built their nest directly over a vertical ventilation pipe. Oh, wow. When the metal covering on the pipe finally rusted away, it left a dangerous open hole. Every year when the nest expands, thousands of worker ants fall down the pipe and cannot back out. Oh. The survivors have nevertheless carried on for years underground, building a nest from soil and maintaining it in typical wood ant fashion. What's the lifespan of an ant? Uh, I don't know. But... like. I mean, is it just staying? Is it just existing because they keep falling through the grate? Yeah, that's what it's saying. Because yeah. if there's no, so they just live, work, and die, and then yeah, new ants fall in there because conditions in the bunker are so harsh, constantly cold, and mostly barren. The ants seem to live in a state of near starvation. They produce oh. no queens, no males, and no offspring. Mm. The massive group tending the nest is entirely composed of non-reproductive female workers, supplanted by. Every year with a new rain of unfortunate ants falling down. New the rain. <laughs> yeah. It's raining ants. <laughs> <laughs> but this is crazy. This is the ant cemetery that they, because they keep building it. It's a, most ant species. Wood ants are tidy animals who remove waste from their colony. In the case of the bunker ants, most of this waste is composed of dead bodies. Oh, the researchers speculate that mortality in the colony is more, much more high, higher than normal circumstances. It says, quote, flat parts of the earth mound of the nest and of the floor of the adjacent spaces were carpeted with bodies of dead ants. This ant cemetery was a few centimeters thick in places, and one cubic decimeter sample contained roughly 8,000 corpses, which led the researchers to suggest that there are likely 2 million dead ants piled around the nest. The sheer numbers of dead bodies suggest that this orphan wood ant nest has been active for many years. Well, it's just so crazy that if they wait long enough, they'll like the ant body bodies will that they pile, can get out. Yeah, they'll, they'll just be able to eventually. They'll make like a chain. Have you ever seen ants do that? Yeah. Like if 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 an ant, they'll chain together, oh, no, and they I can climb or drop stuff down too. Oh, I, I never knew that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. 
ants are cool creatures. Yeah, wouldn't you know, wouldn't like them around me. No. I'm not a big insect guy, but neither. But it's <laughs> it's so weird that there or there's it a, is weird. Well, everything about it's weird. The nuclear bunker. Yeah. The, it's Russian and Poland and like the it's whole Polish. Polish. Don't, don't call us Russian. <coughs> uh, yeah, sorry. No, the Russian bunker. It was made by the Russians. Yeah, but it's so, in Poland. Soviets. Yeah, the Soviets made it. Anyways, it's just weird. Yeah. I wonder if the warhead's gone. Probably. <laughs> I, I would hope so. One of those ants are going to be so done. He's like, I'm done. Find the red button. <laughs> <laughs> Start a nuclear war. <laughs> uh, Anyways, uh, yeah. do we have a great podcast tonight? We have a great guest, and it's going to be a great topic. Uh, I think it's going to be really fun. And uh, You keep talking about it like... I hope it's fun. Like we already recorded. It. I know we already recorded. It is it. awesome. Yeah. It is good. We do have a really good right, guest. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, what do I always say? Sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War podcast. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of All Out War. I am Turner, and I'm joined in the studio with Rosie, as you guys know. Rosie, how are you? Hey. <laughs> we have a really great guest tonight. His name is Rob Solberg, and he has written a book that has become one of my favorites. It's called Torahism, Are Christians Required to Keep the Law of Moses? I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation we're going to have tonight. I think it's going to touch a lot of key points and speak to a lot of different people who are listeners to our podcast. And so I just want to welcome to the podcast, Rob Solberg. Rob, how are you, man? I'm great. I'm uh, honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. It's our pleasure. For those of you that don't know, Rob is a theologian, an apologist, and he's also a professor at Williamson College in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, And he's written a book called Divergence, and then also examining Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. And then the book that I read that we're going to talk about a little bit tonight is called Torahism. So, Rob, I have been noticing uh, that YouTube can be one of the greatest and one of the worst things <laughs> for the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. So true. <laughs> but there, there is a, there has been a rise and is a rise of something that I just umbrella called the Hebrew Roots Movement, and it's uh, a movement that you obviously are familiar with, where there are Christians who are moving away from what I would call grace in salvation and moving back towards a um, a posture of the law and accepting and working in the law, of using the law, and uh, even the feasts and the festivals and all of those things. And uh, so I was beginning to do some research, came across your YouTube channel, and then that's where I found your book. Um, I just want to say thank you, first of all, for everything you do. Mm-hmm. It's really um, awesome. And, and the information you give, the grace that you show. Uh, because the interactions I've had with some of the people that are involved in, and they wouldn't even call themselves Hebrew roots, which is really interesting, but it has yeah. that, I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> Maybe well, that's, why, that's why I coined the, coined the term Torahism. It's perfect. Because uh, Hebrew roots is sort of one of the names you might hear it called Torah observant Christianity. Mm-hmm. There's this weird uh, title now they're calling, some of them are calling themselves pronomian mm-hmm. Christians. So, um, 
messianics there's all kinds of weird labels and it's not a monolithic movement which is why i I just ended up calling the general theology torahism so you said pronomium nomianism uh what is that exactly because i've i've heard antinomianism um, Mm, used to describe me (laughs) (laughs) right yeah so pronomian is a term as far as i know that was made up by hebrew roots folks who who don't want to be called Hebrew Roots because Hebrew Roots as a title is is gathering some negative press as well. Um, and so this is my understanding. I, they have a statement out, and I know one of the guys I debated from 119 Ministries now calls himself Pronomian and took exception to me calling him or referring to him as a Hebrew Roots teacher. Hmm. Um, and so Pronomian means for or, you know, pro, for, nomian, the law. So they're pro-law is really what they're saying. And it's really, I think it's just them staking a ground on the opposite end of the field as antinomianism. Okay. So pro-law. So antinomianism would be against the law, you know? Well, so classically speaking, theologically speaking, antinomian antinomian is this belief that there really are no laws, that that the Christian is free to do whatever they would like to do. (laughs) There's there's no, and and it's a very, uh, you know, in its proper form, it's a very, um, rebellious unbiblical position and, and so i'm also against antinomianism i don't i don't believe that we're under no laws or commands because you know under under the new covenant in jesus mm-hmm. not at all so let's let's talk about the law for a second let's start there because that's where this is all going to go back to yeah um when before moses was given the law on mount sinai what was this what was the law the the law that we had from you know Abraham and Noah and those guys what was what? Well, yeah that's a great question that that goes you you jumped right to the heart of the issue uh, in, in in many ways so the law of Moses um, and here if you don't mind I'll clear up a couple things or, or at least get us on the same footing in terms of terminology and this is I mentioned in the book too it, it becomes a big problem that that the word or the term Torah is often conflated with the term law of Moses mm-hmm. and in in loose informal circles those can be used interchangeably without too much harm um, in and when you start dealing with Hebrew roots it becomes a pretty big issue because you know uh, properly speaking the Torah refers to the first three uh, first five, I'm sorry, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so Torah in that sense, I mean, that's where, if you're familiar with the acronym Tanakh, mm-hmm. referring to the to the Hebrew Bible, the TA of that is Torah. So um, Torah really just means instruction or guidance. It doesn't necessarily mean law. And matter, matter of fact, I think translating it into English as law can be a bit misleading mm-hmm. uh, from the Hebrew mindset. So Torah is the instruction of God as found in the first five books of the Bible. Now, the law of Moses is a very specific thing that was given at Mount Sinai through Moses. He, it wasn't his law. He was just the mediator. It was God's law. But it was a law that was made with Israel, uh, for Israel. And so it had a starting point. It began at Mount Sinai. Now, prior to that, it wasn't like the world was lawless. So, so, and it's very interesting. There's a Messianic Jewish organization that came out with a really great statement, which I wish I would have pulled up so I could read it to you. But <laughs> basically what they're saying is that, look, the, the Torah wasn't some sort of revolutionary moral law. It really offered nothing new in terms of morality. Uh, murder was already wrong. Adultery was already wrong. Wickedness, all that, all those things already existed because they come out of, uh, they come out of the, the moral, unchanging moral perfection of God. 
right? Mm. So you see disobedience in the garden. You see Adam disobey God's command. Now, that wasn't a disobedience of the law of Moses because first, the law of Moses wasn't around, and second, there are no commands in the law of Moses against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we know there was some sort of right and wrong, yeah. right? And and my belief is that it's because of what we read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, right? That we are made in God's image. Mm-hmm. So I, so human beings have this sort of objective morality baked into who they are, into our DNA. And so there was already this sense of wrong. Cain killing Abel, that was already wrong and sinful and punishable and all that. So we can't, we can't say that the law of Moses is the law of God. That's actually not technically speaking. I, again, when we're informally chatting, you can in, intersperse some of those names. But yeah. if you want to be really precise, the, the law of God is this overarching, unchanging, it will never differ because it's grounded in God's moral perfection type of law. Uh, and it's not a law in terms of what we might think of like the law of Moses, a, a code or a set of rules. It's more like mm-hmm. a law of gravity or something like that. It's a universal law. Now, God codified some laws specifically at Sinai for Israel, and that's where we get into the distinction to say that if if the law of Moses started at, at Sinai, then how could Abraham have kept the law? How, how right. You know what I mean? Yeah. In, 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 yeah, so that's where a lot of confusion arises. So if I'm hearing correctly, it's almost as though there's this overarching moral law over humanity and then a specific law that was given to the people of Israel to set them apart. Right, yeah. And you see that. I mean, that's the whole point of the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Exodus 19, God says, I'm calling you as a holy nation. And in yeah. and in, in Hebrew, you know, the word holy means set apart for God. You're, you're different. You're not like the others. And we see that carried out in all those Mosaic laws. Uh, Deuteronomy, I think, 1421 talks about, hey, if something, if an animal that's clean for you to eat, you know, if it's kosher food, but it dies naturally, as in you didn't ritually slaughter it, mm-hmm. uh, you can't eat it. So if you're an Israelite, you can't eat that. But you know what you can do? You can give it to a Gentile and they can have it. Mm-hmm. So there's this very, there's this very clear distinction uh, right there in that verse that the, the dietary laws for, for Jews, for Israel, were different than the dietary laws for what they call the foreigners or the sojourners, for the Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, you know, Babylon was never expected to keep Sabbath, right? And, and right. Israel was not expected to keep the feasts and, and all that. So, um, this is, and I, the reason I'm kind of laboring this point is because it's a very common point of attack from Hebrew Roots folks to say that the law of Moses was for everybody, including Gentiles, and it wasn't. Right. And I was just going to ask, kind of expand upon that is, um, this is kind of a weird question, so I apologize. And if you, there isn't a, a clear answer, that, that's okay, too. But I was just thinking um, it, that it, the, so the law was given to set apart, like, you know, when God said he called out of a group of people, a group of people, mm-hmm. a subset to be right. ruled by these uh, different things that would be set apart, circumcision, all these acts that they would be physically as well as spiritually and through their actions um, be different. Um, At the same time, uh, you know, uh, sorry, go with me here. Is those people who were the Gentile nations, the the Babylonians, for example, uh, when we talk about this overarching moral law, like those people, um, like the Sumerians had books of law that, you know, they – 
there was kind of the, this overarching universal principle that like murder is wrong or stealing is wrong. They Those people knew that there was something written on their hearts, like what uh, it talks about in the New Testament, that they this moral code. So when we're talking about that, like, would you say that uh, the Gentile nations of the time still had that innate uh, being, uh, you know, imagers of God, images of God? They, we still have uh, that moral code built into us, but it's not held to the same standard um, for Israel by God. Like he basically God is going to look at Babylonians for murdering. And I I don't want to speak for God, so it's kind of awkward here. But uh, <laughs> no, I follow you that like those people are going to be judged harshly for murdering because they know that murder is wrong. Um, but they don't have to keep all these other things. So there's always, right? like, we're not, by saying that this group of uh, people had a specific law, that's not to say that other groups that we don't know about may have had uh, moral, uh, people could have lived morally. Right, and, right. I mean, there's, I mean, you look at, like, the Hammurabi Code, which was, mm -hmm. uh, many believe it even predates the Torah. Uh, you know, King Hammurabi from the old old uh, Babylonian Empire created this this law code that included many things that were also included in the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. I mean, murder and and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't identical, but it absolutely drew on that objective morality that I that I was mentioning before. I believe is baked into humanity. Uh -huh. um, and so you've got situations in the in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. Uh, you we often see. Israel judged for not keeping the Sabbath, for not keeping the feasts, and for, for all the, not bringing their sacrifices and all that. What we don't see is Babylon, you know, Babylonians or Egyptians uh, judged for not keeping the Sabbath or for eat, not eating kosher. But we do see those Gentile nations judged for wickedness, for, mm -hmm. for immorality and, you know, sexual deviance and murder and all those sorts of things, which I think is a really um, clear indicator that the moral laws that predate the law of Moses are universal and God will hold mankind universally responsible. As you mentioned, uh, Romans one, Paul talks about that, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. And we all know that the standard for heaven is perfection. So uh, the law, <laughs> there's yeah. going to be a pretty, it doesn't matter how well they keep the moral law, they're still, they're born <clears throat> into imperfection, right? right. So <laughs> it's a losing game, <laughs> which makes yeah. Jesus that much more appealing. But so I have a question for you then today, for today, say a, there's a, like our Jewish friends today that do not, they're not messianic. They don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. Right. Are they still held to the law found in the Torah or are they, are, is that since Christ came and abolished the old covenant and, and, you know, established the new covenant, what, what will God mm. hold them to in a stand as a standard? Yeah, that's really interesting. I had actually had a debate in July with a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Tovi Singer. And one of the difficult things in preparing for that for me, so my background, as you guys mentioned, is kind of with Hebrew roots with, uh, you know, my, my YouTube channel, Defending the Biblical Roots of Christianity, is all about trying to get um, accurate with our biblical understanding of where Christianity came from. So when I'm debating uh, with Hebrew roots folks, Torahists, as I call them, uh, they are um, they're at least agreeing with me that Jesus was the 
most of them agree, that -hmm. Jesus was the Messiah, that he's the Savior, the Son of God, etc., and that the New Testament is the inspired Word of God. Jews, on the other hand, reject both of those. So so I had a difficult time uh, preparing for my debate with the rabbi because of that. I thought, oh, wait a second, Uh, all these things that I already take as for as granted, I now need to uh, <laughs> adjust my approach. And so one of the things I ended up kind of thinking through was, okay, how do we look at that um, that concept of the the Torah's application to Jewish non-Christian uh, religious Jews today? Um, and so what I came up with, I mean, where I kind of land, and, and again, I did, I wrote that book, uh, Divergence, which is really about the, the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism in the first three centuries. It, it occurred to me that what happened, it, for, for example, the Judaism of today really doesn't resemble first century Judaism when Jesus was around. Mm, it's, right. it's very, very different. It turned into rabbinic Judaism. Many things have, took a, a very... The rabbis, after the destruction of the temple, had to figure out, how do we make Judaism work without a temple yeah. and without a priesthood and all that? So, I, I guess I'm taking a long time to answer your question. No, Here, totally. Here's how I see it. The Jews in the first century, and there were tens of thousands of them who came to faith in Jesus as their own Messiah and followed him, were following the right course and the Jews in the first century who rejected him as the Messiah, and there was many of them as well, uh, missed the turn, you know, they, they, they missed the turn and they kept going in the wrong direction. And in my opinion, they're still in going in the wrong direction today. Now, it doesn't hurt anything that they're keeping Torah today. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And even like I was at a Messianic Jewish conference um, in out in Pennsylvania a few weeks back, Maybe it was a month, whenever. Um, And it was really cool to see these folks who were raised Jewish, who ate kosher, who kept Shabbat and all that, who also were singing praises to Yeshua HaMashiach, Mm -hmm. their their Messiah. It was really cool and inspiring. But at the same time, they they would readily admit, we don't keep the Torah because we're um, required to as a matter of salvation, and we don't even keep the Torah commands like the Sabbath and the kosher and all that as a matter of righteousness, because they recognize that there's not one thing we can do to add to the righteousness that's ours when we come to faith in Jesus. We have his perfect righteousness imputed to us. So they say the reason we keep those things is because they are a sort of a, a, a cultural identity marker of who we are as Jews. We're proud of the fact that God made us Jews, that we are the people of the covenant and all that, and now we're following our Messiah. Some of them refer to themselves as completed Jews, which I thought was kind of a mm. cool phrase. Mm-hmm. That is cool. Um, but so, yeah, so there, so so to now say, okay, well, what about a Jew that doesn't accept Yeshua, like the rabbi debated? Well, so my answer would be, they missed the boat. They they did. They missed the memo. I don't mean to be glib about it, but they missed the memo that that's not required of them as a matter of salvation or obedience mm. any further. That there that Jesus came and everything changed now that we're under the new covenant. Um, but again, it doesn't hurt that they do that. And if they follow Jesus, and I even think the New Testament authors and Jesus himself expected that Jewish followers of Jesus would go right on keeping those things because they were never forbidden. Yeah. Uh, you know, but they, but the the distinction that I always make is they are permitted, but they're not required. Right, exactly. Mm, that's good. And you, if you think about it too, uh, the with Jesus ushering in the new covenant, you know, with the Last Supper, and then uh, you know confirming it by re- resurrecting from the dead, then the temple being destroyed, 
he literally removed every, you know, oh, angle that they could have right. to rely on any of that. Like, they can't even have the sacrificial system because mm -hmm. there is no priestly priesthood right now because they don't have a temple. And um, so every thing that they relied on was literally removed by God. Right, right. And what's interesting is that it wasn't, you know, like when they, when they were exiled the first time, they they were told it was going to be 70 years and they would be brought back to the land. Yeah. This second dispersion in AD 70, God obviously knew about it. Not only did he know, know about it, he ordained it. And not only did he ordain it, Jesus predicted it. Mm -hmm. So it was, it did not come as a surprise. And yet God didn't say, look, it'll only be this many years. Uh, right. and this is after, or after this event, you'll come back type of thing. So there was, there was to me, I, you know, I kind of look at it as it was the period at the end of the sentence, hmm. um, for the new covenant has, has begun that we are now in the messianic age. Jesus inaugurated it. And, you know, then you get into the whole, uh, already not yet kind of approach, but Jesus inaugurated, he said, the kingdom is among you. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think we're in that right now. And I agree with you that that you really can't get around that massive historical event of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Yeah, that, that was so <clears throat> sorry. Terrible timing on my part with that. Apologize. Um, <laughs> that was uh, such a great point with uh, God always telling them, you know, it's going to be for a time. I'm punishing you for a time. And then, uh, like he said, at 70 A.D., it kind of, I mean, it goes directly in line with uh, what Jesus, you know, be fishers, go out into all the world and baptize, you know, all right. of creation. Like, again, I just really like that point that you just made about God uh, solidifying. Cause I always said, uh, you know, the Old Testament Judaism was, you know, killed when Jesus, you know, for the first time when Jesus rose again from the dead and fulfilled it and all everything that he said. And then again, with the destruction of the temple, that's like the second death or so to speak of, uh, yeah. you know, God really, you know, putting a period and then exactly what you had said about the scattering all to the nations with no promise of return or anything like that. It, that seems like something, um, like the exclamation part again, like I told you once, I showed you twice, I'm going to show you three times. <laughs> yeah. And it directly goes in line with uh, what Jesus is saying. It's almost like he's like what you're saying with the foretelling. He's telling them, you're going to be scattered amongst the nations. This is for like the good of my kingdom. Do these things. Yeah. Um, that it would have made sense to uh, a, Jew, uh, a Jewish follower that knew, uh, you know, his history and was listening to Jesus and, you know, it, it, it all is connected. I just really, really like that point and wanted to pull that out. That was great. Um, and oh, do you have something, Tara? I was when you're oh, done. I'm done. Okay, yeah, sorry. So I, I wanted let's let's switch gears from a from the Judaism you know Judaism side of things to the Christian side of things. Mm -hmm. So um, in conversations with people who lean into Torahism, they say they will tell me that the the law is eternal, that God's word is unchanging. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's truth to that because God's word is sure. unchanging. So, what is a proper response? And what is like? Help me unpack that because I, I don't have. I didn't know exactly what to say. It kind of took me off guard, if I'm honest. Yeah, and uh, oh yeah, I've been taken off guard, you know, thousands of times <laughs> in the last three or four years. I'm like, what could could that be true? I better go check it out. You know. Mm -hmm. um, so, a couple things. 
the first thing I want to, if you don't mind, I'm just, just a real quick point of clarification, because I know that sometimes those, um, in the movement, uh, can take, can, can perhaps be offended by the term Torahism. So I just want to mention that that's not, and I put, I point this out in the book, but it's not at all intended as a derisive term or, you know, it's the same thing as calling someone a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, uh, Torahism is a description of a belief system. Mm. Um, and so the belief system is merely this, that Torahism is the theology that teaches that keeping the law of Moses is required of followers of Jesus and not keeping that law is sinful. Mm. So anyone who holds that particular theology happens to be uh, subscribing to Torahism. And so, you know, if you think that's good, then great, you know, if you don't, not. But so, that's. I just want to mention that's where it comes from. So, the Torah, of course, is a beautiful, God-given, uh, holy thing. Torahism, on the other hand, in my opinion, is a twisting of what the Torah is. Mm-hmm. So, just to clarify that. Thank so, um, now, what I, what I would say about the law being eternal, um, it, it is a, it is a difficult thing to unpack. So let me use an analogy. I, I've used this in, uh, a couple times, and I think it's pretty effective. At least it helps me. So you, so if you guys are familiar with the movie The Sixth Sense by M Night Shyamalan, yeah. So I mean that's an older movie, so it's too late to even do a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it yet. But the the premise of the movie, of course, is that this young boy uh, is having visions and he's can't sleep and he's having trouble. So his parents hire a psychiatrist or a therapist to come in and try to help him work through what he's dealing with. The therapist they bring in, of course, is is Bruce Willis. His character's name is Malcolm. And so all throughout the movie, he's trying to help the boy, etc. And then near the end of the movie, we get this shocking reveal that, uh, which is, I think, put the movie on the map, but that, that, that the boy can see dead people. You might remember that from the trailer. They show him saying, I see dead people. <laughs> That's kind of like the big thing, right? And so it turns out, we didn't know it at the time, that Bruce Willis was dead the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And he was seeing the ghost and interacting with the ghost. And so that's this big revelation that changes everything we've seen. And now, if you're a nerd like me, and then you, when you learn that, you go back and watch the movie a second time, mm-hmm. you understand, you start seeing, oh my gosh, the director put in all these clues. How did I miss it? Bruce mm-hmm. Willis gets shot in the very first scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, maybe, you know, and, he, and, and you think, oh, wow, his wife's really mad at him. She's not even looking him in the eye and, you know, she's being cold. And you realize later that it's because he was dead and no one, no one could see him. Mm-hmm. So my point is this, the same thing kind of holds true with scripture. The revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, uh, turned everything on its ear. It was a paradigm shift for God's relationship with people and for theology and for scripture. Now, if we go back to the beginning and watch, so to speak, go through the story again, go through the Old Testament, the Tanakh again, with the understanding, with the new revelation that that Jesus is the Christ, he is the promised Messiah, we start noticing all these clues all over the place that God, the author, put into the story to let us know there was going to be a big revelation. And so, a lot of times what happens is when you see things like, well, I'm going to interpret the uh, the words about this, you know, this, the Torah, or the, the law is eternal and going to a, you know, a thousand generations and mm-hmm. all that stuff. That makes sense if you're Jewish and you reject the New Testament. If you have the revelation of the New Testament, you now need to go through and read those passages in light of what we now know 
in Jesus. And so that brings to mind things like Galatians 3, right, where Paul says, well, why was why was the law given? Well, it was added because of transgressions. And then he says this, this is like verse 19, I think, Galatians 3, 19. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Mm-hmm. And now in a couple of verses earlier, he told us the offspring he's talking about is Jesus. So he's saying the law was temporary. It was given until Jesus showed up. And he repeats the same thing a few verses later, you know, saying that, that, that the law was our guardian Mm-hmm. until Christ came, you know, and, and, but now that faith has come, now that Jesus showed up, we're no longer under a guardian. So we have, we now have to reconcile both of those things as Christians who believe the New Testament is the inspired Word of God. Now, how do we go back and look at the Old Testament through that Christological lens? And what we find are things, and I, I, I point this out a little bit in my book, you know, the Hebrew word olam, which means, often can mean forever, but it also means about 20 other things. Mm. (laughs) And so if you see a passage where it says such and such will last forever, that's your English translation. In Hebrew, it would say olam instead of forever. So you could say, well, okay, now as an interpreter, how do I interpret the word olam in this passage? Well, knowing that Jesus came, knowing what Paul taught, uh, then I need to interpret it not to mean forever. It can also mean for a long time. It can mean it can even mean past in the, in the past. So so you now you now mm. kind of reinterpret, so to speak, uh, in the light of Jesus. You more, in my opinion, you more appropriately are now able to interpret the Old Testament, the same way as you are now more appropriately able to watch the movie The Sixth Sense <laughs> right. now that you know that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I go with that. And as you just heard, it's not a simple answer, which makes it kind of difficult because a lot of people today want the bumper sticker answer, right? you know, and it makes it difficult. Do you find that it, um, it's confusing for some people because when they look in the gospels, they'll see, well, look, Jesus went and celebrated the feast. Jesus, you know, honored the Sabbath and, uh, you know, he kept, he kept the Torah is but because I they would point to that, someone might point to that, and I'd be like, "Yeah, but he lived under the system, and he was a Jew." So <laughs> okay, that's yeah, that's point number one. Why did Jesus obey the law? Well, for one thing, the the Mosaic covenant was still in effect until he died. Yeah. And number two, you're right. He was uh, Galatians four four and five say that he was born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, Jesus was a Jew, and he was subject to the law of Moses during his entire lifetime. Um, now we see a huge change when the resurrection happened. You know, Luke twenty two twenty, First Corinthians eleven twenty five tell us about the new covenant is in Jesus' blood. Yeah. So his sacrifice inaugurated the new covenant. And now after his resurrection, you know, before his resurrection, we see Jesus saying things like, "Don't go to the towns of the Gentiles, right?" And mm-hmm. and I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. Very Israel focused. Yeah. As the Messiah. After his resurrection, where now we're under the new covenant, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, you know, and then also in, uh, what is it, Acts 1, 6 or 7, he talks about, you know, you will be my witnesses in Samaria and Judea and beyond. And so you have this uh, pivot once we hit the New Testament that, wait a second, this is for everybody, not just for the Jews. And so now what do we do with this idea, not only that Jesus kept the law, but so did the apostles and disciples, even after he was resurrected. Um, and so the question becomes, well, how do we deal with that? Why would they keep that if, if the law was no longer in effect? And I go back to my earlier statement, the law was permitted, but not required. Mm-hmm. There, there was no reason to expect 
that Jewish followers of Jesus should or would stop keeping the Sabbath or eating kosher or any of that um, because they, it wasn't forbidden. At the same time, uh, there's no reason to expect that the Gentiles now needed to adopt that as, as they talked about specifically in, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Mm. So why are they keeping it? Well, it's because they're Jews and it felt right to them and it was it was no problem. There, they, no one ever told them they had to stop, you know? Um, so yeah, and there's and there's also this issue. You look at First Corinthians nine. Uh, this is where Paul talks about you know uh, what is he, you know to the Jews I became a Jew in order yeah. to win the Jews and that whole thing. Yeah. Um, and so you really get this sense there that Paul's saying, well, wait a second. Oh, I have no problem keeping the law if I'm with people who are under the law, and if I'm with people who aren't under the law, I have no problem with that either. I'm good either way. Which, again, that comes to this, that, that to me presents the idea of permitted but not required. And Paul, you know, Paul, he was sold out to the gospel of Jesus. So I don't care. I'll do whatever as long as I can save some people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And this is kind of a question for clarification of, uh, I kind of thought about the, you know, during the, the, the New Testament after the resurrection, where exactly what you said about Paul. And almost that uh, I kind of think of it as, you know, these the Jewish was not only a religion, but it was also a, a specific, you know, we talked about people group, ethnicity, mm-hmm. uh, nation. And uh, I'll just kind of like uh, I always think of it in terms of me being uh, I'm Polish ancestry and, right. uh, you know, for. You know, that's in my hair, you know, my heritage. We like to eat pierogies and sauerkraut and sausages. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, something become a Christian. I would still like to celebrate uh, my cultural heritage that has nothing to do with my faith. I'm just, um, you know, or for a better example, those are the only things I only ate Polish food and now I'm allowed to eat everything. Right. Um, I still might feel more comfortable just eating pierogies all day. Um, and at, at the same time, it, it, the, the point about uh, Paul is when he says that there's that underlying um, thing of I'm going to go, uh, you know, hang out with Polish people, even if I don't like pierogies, I'm going to, well, right. I'm reading into that. I'm going to go eat pierogies and sauerkraut and all this stuff so that I can tell them about the good news mm-hmm. and like do that. It's, it's the comfort thing, you know. It's it, a great it, analogy. Yeah. It, it, is that is that in line with uh you know the kind of thinking of past that it's almost a like what you had said before a reverence of their uh not religious aspect of it but the the cultural yeah the cultural aspect yeah, yeah. Okay. i mean think about they they they're doing what their parents did and their grandparents and all that all the way back to moses mm-hmm. they are keeping those commands and so there's got to be a sense in which it feels almost wrong like an example so so my my wife and I are musicians, um, and we tour a lot, or used to, don't so much anymore. Uh, but uh, I remember one year we were in Norway for a Christmas tour, and we arrived there a couple days before Thanksgiving. But of course, Norway doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving. It has no, they're, they're like, what's that? You know. Um, so I mean, they knew because everyone knows America, but they don't. There's no tradition for that. And so here we are in Norway with our two daughters, who who would often come along with us, on what felt like 
Thanksgiving to us, it was <laughs> it was snow all over the place, and and, and we had just been in America, so we saw all the commercials for turkey and for whatever. So we were geared up for that, and we thought, well, let's just have a little family meal, and we'll call that our Thanksgiving because that's what we were used to celebrating, and it felt right to us. So there is that aspect of um, the culture. I would argue that for first century Jews especially – it's even bigger than that because the role that the Torah played in their lives and their culture was so much bigger than Thanksgiving to an American. So, and so if you multiply that and you think to yourself, well, no one told me I'm not supposed to, and I believe in Jesus and he never said I shouldn't. And matter of fact, some of Jesus's comments, I think can be construed as assuming or expecting that his Jewish followers would, you know, pray that it, Pray that that doesn't happen on the Sabbath, he said. Mm-hmm. Well, wh- you know, meaning I assume you guys will still be keeping the Sabbath and let's hope it doesn't happen then because, you know. So, so there would, yeah, so I would agree with your analogy. I think that's a good one. And, and the other thing that's interesting too, when you talk about, well, how do I, and there's a lot of confusion, by the way, I'm, I'm giving you the nice clean version. <laughs> the first century was crazy. I mean, there was all kinds of, what do we do? How do we work out our faith? Um I think the good news, of course, is that we have freedom in Christ, and so that those sorts of things, like Paul says in Romans 14, you know, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of food and drink and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but you start to see these things a little bit touched on in the first, or, or yeah, in the first century in the New Testament. And I'm thinking specifically of um, of First uh, uh, Corinthians seven, mm-hmm. and Paul talks about he has this whole thing about um, living as you were called, right? So he basically, I'm I'm summarizing, but he's basically saying, hey, if you were Jewish when you came to faith in Jesus, when you were called yeah. to faith, yeah. just stay Jewish, and if you were Gentile, stay Gentile. There's no need to become the other one. Yeah. Uh, and so I think Paul was a little bit. Um, speaking to that. And of course, at that time, you've got the Judaizers mixing things up. Mm -hmm. uh, And I I can't really blame them because it would have been definitely confusing because, hey, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah promised in the Jewish scriptures. So, it kind of makes sense that the Gentiles have to become Jews first, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, I could totally see that. Yeah. I could totally see that. um, One of the things, too, that is interesting is that the first real like interaction that the church deals with this is in Acts 15. You had mentioned it a few minutes ago. And, yeah. you know, basically they the, they have this council that meets and they talk about what a Gentile, what should be required of a Gentile. Can you talk about that for a second? Sure. That's a, that's a big one if you're dealing with Hebrew roots. You'll, you'll hear this one a lot. I've got several videos on it for that very reason. I think I have a whole chapter or a section in my book on it. Yeah. Um, and, and the important thing to remember here, I mean, you, like anything else, you have to read it in context. And so what I think is super cool for me, and I'm a big history nerd, so I love the fact that in Acts 15, we have the actual content of the letter that the council wrote to the Gentile churches. Yeah. So, I mean, how often do you actually get the letter? And that's super cool to me. So, um, but for those, aren't, who, for those who aren't familiar with the passage, I'd, you know, I'd suggest you read it through. It's from Acts 15, 1 through 29. And basically what happens is these Judaizers are, are walking or going around teaching that, that, that uh, Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And, and it says that Paul and Barnabas got into no small de- debate of, over it, so they all went up to Jerusalem, where James was in charge of the Jerusalem church. And as far as we know, this was the very first sort of ecumenical gathering of the church, mm-hmm. the New Testament church. So they went up to discuss this, and Peter was there, Paul, Barnabas, James, and all the elders and such. So it was, I mean, it was some of the 
you know, heavy hitters, <laughs> if you want to use that term. Um, and, and so what they got in, they really got into, they kind of re rehashed what God had already been doing up to that point through the Gentiles, right? And so Peter's talking about uh, what we read about a few chapters earlier in Acts 10 about Cornelius and how God mm -hmm. just descended the Holy Spirit on them despite the fact that they weren't keeping the law. And the, so anyway, I'll fast forward. But so the, what they ultimately decided, James decided, you know what? we're going to require the Gentiles, I think the phrase is no greater burden than this. And they give mm -hmm. them, then they give them four restrictions. Um, and three of them have to do with food. It has to do with not eating meat sacrificed to idols and not eating anything that's been strangled. And uh, I think not eating blood. And then the fourth one is about sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. And they say, and, and they say, look, if you do these four things, if you keep yourself, if you abstain from these four things, I think is how it's put, then you'll do well. And that's it. So what happens is there's, there is a uh, verse 21 is a little bit ambiguous in, ter in terms of what it means. And it basically says, hmm. here's the reason we're issuing these four commands. It's because Moses has been preached every Sabbath in the synagogue forever, basically. Hmm. Uh, and so that, that's not super clear. So I've got a couple of videos that kind of really dive into what could that mean. And I look at, well, here's the Hebrew roots interpretation of that. Here's the real world, not real world. I shouldn't say that. Here's the <laughs> mainstream Christian interpretation. Um, and, and what it comes down to for me uh, is the fact that this is this statement about why they're doing it is for the unity of the growing church. So you've got all these Gentiles coming out of paganism into belief in a Jewish Messiah who are now going to be doing life with new Jewish brothers and sisters, right? And so how do we maintain unity? The Gentiles already knew things like adultery were wrong and murder. And again, we go yeah. kind of back to that objective moral thing. What they maybe didn't realize is I'm not supposed to eat Meat, meat that's been strangled or worship to, you know, sacrifice to an idol. And then they also wouldn't have been aware of the, the higher sexual standard that the Torah, that the Jewish people held to, much higher than the pagan sexual standard. Mm -hmm. So what they, what they were giving them were, and this is such a common theme in the New Testament, don't do anything that will cause your brother to stumble, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all over the writings of the New Testament. Yeah. So what they're being taught is, look, you know, we're going to give you no greater burden than this. And no greater burden doesn't mean later on we'll teach you the whole Torah. It means no greater burden than these four things. Okay. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of where that where I come down on that. And that is really, I think, and here's what's interesting too. That's that what I was going to say is that's really a very clear passage about the Gentiles' relationship to the law of Moses. Mm. Um, and what what happens though when I first started getting into Torahism and, and understanding, I call it kind of walking through the back of the wardrobe into this crazy <laughs> world. Um, <laughs> that it surprised me, and you know, anyway, what I found was I thought I remember the first couple of years I was dealing with it. I thought, you know what, I'm going to find like the silver bullet verse that's just going to going to be insurmountable and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that the law of Moses isn't required, especially of Gentile believers, right? And so I, I looked and looked and looked, and I ended up finding seven or eight of those passages. But but it didn't do any good because I, I had really misjudged what's going on in the Hebrew roots world. Mm. Um, and so it's not... It's not a matter of like mathematical sums, right? Where they were just doing this big calculation and they got one of the sums in the middle wrong. And if I if I can fix that, then of course they're going to land at the proper conclusion. Right. Nothing like that. There's there is a 
there's an emotional or psychological commitment that's made, a sense of um, identity that's discovered. Uh, mm-hmm. So that it goes much deeper than that. And I also believe there's a lot of spiritual stuff going on because yep. the enemy would love to get us all wrapped up in legalism. Um, and, and, you know, the, he would love it if we would really revere Moses over Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and they won't say as much, but this is really the outcome that you see of the teachings of, uh, of Torahism. E- even those who would say, look, I affirm with you, Rob, that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus, right? Okay, great. That's great. And so the, you know, 119 Ministries, for example, I'm, I've got a video coming out on one of their teachings. And he says, one of the teachers there says, well, what is faith? Well, faith is walking in obedience to the Torah. <laughs> well, wait a second. So, so, so you define faith not as belief or trust, but as walking in obedience to the Torah. Okay, so so then when you say salvation comes by faith, aren't you kind of saying salvation comes by keeping the Torah? I mean, now, again, they don't necessarily put those logical um, dots in place the way that I've expressed it, but I don't think they realize what they're implying. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I was kind of thinking um, along the same lines, and uh, I have uh, listeners now, I always talk about the this group of uh, that I've somehow found myself in uh, in the middle of are these super radical traditionalist Catholics. And so I have this, all my prot friends, and then I have these Catholic guys. And so, um, <laughs> you know, at the, I'm pretty anti-Catholic, so I apologize if I'm offending anyone. <laughs> But uh, I'm not actually apologizing, but much in the same way that you were talking about that, I kind of think of it in the same way of like John MacArthur just summed it up so good. It's like there's people in the Catholic Church that are going to be saved, but not because of what they're learning in the Catholic Church. It's like almost in spite of that, that like God Mm. can, it's almost a, a framing of God can still save people even inside the Catholic Church with all the, you know, not getting into that at all, but it's almost in spite that it, it should be, I view it as uh, a slight difference that uh, just because of my issues with the Catholic church and their theology, sure. it's, um, it's almost in spite, but God can still, even within the Catholic church, save these people. And yeah. I kind of view that almost not, not a one for one, you know, correlation to this, but it's almost that, um, I'll say it like this. I think that there is a lot of people, um, especially people who may listen to this podcast, who may not be aware of how close they're drifting to the line of Torahism into, uh, I'll say, the point of no return where you're definitely in heresy. They're dancing on the line up to the line. And I don't think that necessarily uh, it's always because they like – hate Jesus and want to go into that. And it's almost like this subtle, like you said, spiritual, um, you know, kind of uh, yearning to learn more. I think it can start off, and maybe if you agree with this or not, it can start with, I want to learn more about God's word. And so I'm going to start digging more into it. And then they might get caught up in, you know, like the Bema podcast or 119, where they're, you know, hey, you know, Christian, uh, I'm going to expand more into, you know, what this is what 
you know, the Old Testament is and how this you can relate to it as a Christian, not knowing that it's this Torahist bent right. to it. So it's out of this goodness that people want to go dive more into the Bible and they just get, like you said, uh, moved down the wrong path. And that's what I love about your book so much is that it, it, you connect those dots that, um, I guess, as a person that I read a lot of theology and uh, apologetics, rather, well, both, but apologetically minded, is, you know, the the logical, we're going to, let's take this point to its logical extreme, because by going to the extreme or further down the road of what you believe, the, you know, you kind of have to be held accountable for all the way past it. And um, I think that it's extremely valuable how you line up all these things that uh, the person might not even be aware of because they're coming, you know, into Torahism under the guise of it's something else. And it's from a genuine place to, you know, want to be closer. They want to grow in their relationship with Jesus, you know. Uh, so from that, you know, I'm going to, uh, a long way to ask, what are the, some of those other kind of uh, bullet points that you connected to kind of maybe serve as a warning to someone that is maybe hearing this and might be flirting on the edge of uh, heresy. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh my gosh, that's such a good question. So the, um, the, the thing I always wonder to myself, how much heresy gets us kicked out of heaven? Because right. no one's got perfect <laughs> theology, right? <laughs> so true. are there, uh, is there some Pelagians in heaven? Are there Catholics in heaven? Are there Hebrew roots in heaven? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Um, what's that saying? I love that saying. Uh, uh, you know, when God put a calling on my life, he factored my stupidity in. Yes, yes. yes so, yeah. you know, I, I, I am not pretending I have perfect theology either. And so what I'm trying to do is find that right balance between um, allowing Hebrew roots folks the freedom of living how they want to live and expressing their love for God, because I absolutely agree with you. I think everyone starts their journey into Hebrew roots, uh, following the beauty uh, and and the um, the tradition and the history, the deep ancient roots that Jesus came from. And there is such powerful beauty in that. And I've, I'm captured by it myself. I mean, this whole process of, you know, getting into tourism and starting to, to, develop an apologetic to understand where the line should be drawn has really, I've really fallen in love with the Tanakh, with the old Testament, with mm-hmm. the, all the, the way I mean, I'm still, I know I'll never get anywhere near the bottom, but to see all the ways that, that God did stuff. I mean, the, even, you know, the God's calendar, the feasts, etc. that's all really cool stuff. So I don't want anyone hearing me say that I'm opposed to any of that mm-hmm. um, uh, on its own, in and of itself. It's a beautiful thing. Now where we draw the line or what are some red flags? I mean, so let me start with the super, super obvious ones. And I've got folks on my YouTube channel that will message me sometime who deny the deity of Jesus. And now we're mm-hmm. talking yeah. salvific issues. We're not talking secondary. How do I live out my faith issues anymore? So if you're denying Jesus and, and I've got a, I've got a chapter in my book on this and what what follows if you deny Jesus. Well, now you're also denying the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So those two become very serious issues. Um, and so that's those are the clear lines. Now, where where we draw the other lines becomes more difficult. And, and what I've what I've kind of established as my sort of litmus test is that 
if someone says uh, Christians should keep the law or it's better or something like that, you know, if they're using kind of equivocal language there, mm, you know, that's a preference thing. If they start saying Christians are required, mm-hmm. obligated to keep the law of Moses and that not doing so is a sin, well, now we're, we're going to have some issues. Um, and and I, in my debate with, with David Wilbur, the 119 Ministries guy, um, we had a debate on the Sabbath. And, you know, in, in our debate, he, uh, I got him to admit that not keeping the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, is sinful. So you're living, mm-hmm. you're unlawful and sinful by not keeping the weekly Shabbat. And I pressed him further and said, well, what about the death penalty? The, the Torah requires the death penalty for desecrating, <laughs> you know. And he said, well, <laughs> technically, you know, he agreed technically that not keeping the Sabbath means that you merit the death penalty. And then he, he quickly added, you know, to his defense, he said, I, I'm not suggesting we carry that out. He said that was part, he thinks, he he, de- he decides or, or has determined that the death penalty was part of theocratic Israel, and we do not have a mechanism in force to, to enforce that. But technically, in God's eyes, we're, we're, we've merited the death penalty. And so, hey. that kind of exposes to me the problem yeah. with what they're talking about. So, if I, you know... And and here is the danger of Torahism. It's maybe not so much heresy. What you know, it's got some things that touch on heresy. But one of the big dangers is the fact that it subtly de-emphasizes Jesus and emphasizes Moses. Yeah. And so you've got things like, well, you know, like I just mentioned, uh, oh, faith. You know, faith, salvation comes by faith, and faith is keeping the Torah. So salvation comes by keeping the Torah. That's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because salvation does not keep it, not even not even in in Old Testament Israel did salvation come from keeping the Torah. It, yeah. it was never a matter of sa- God saved Israel out of Egypt first, then He gave them the law. Yeah. Yep. So it's never been an issue of justification or salvation. So uh, the other thing that happens, I think, that's dangerous is you start to subtly, and again, most folks won't come out flat and say this, but you start implying that there is something we can do to add to the righteousness mm-hmm. that is ours in Jesus, that mm-hmm. God will see us as a little more holy, mm-hmm. as a little more righteous if we would just keep the Sabbath or if we would just avoid pork or whatever it might be. And so when you get into those areas, you think I always think of the Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis book, where he's not talking about this devil with horns and you know this obvious enemy he's talking about subtle little you know subtle little ways to get you off track from the truth of god and so i think that's what happens a lot in torahism now it gets carried out a lot into divisiveness in families As a matter of yeah. fact i've had i've had calls with a number of pastors who are having trouble with it in even splitting their churches and that's obviously a problem too oh, so the, so so and i'm not saying that divisiveness is a tenet of Torahism, but but I'm saying it's a common fruit of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, definitely, like we're talking about markers or things that are kind of come up, and one of the things, like you said, to extreme point is that they'll, they'll deny the divinity of Christ. And what is their argument for that? Like, would they say that he just fulfilled Torah and then died but didn't resurrect? Like, what's the... Because I haven't, I haven't run into that argument. I've run into, well, Paul was wrong, and to me, like the they'll start criticizing Paul and not want to accept his letters. Um, yeah, and the Trinity makes sense as well, um, 
because, you know, I mean, to me, logically, Jesus said in John's gospel, he said that I'm going to be in you, I'll be with you, I'm going to lead you, and, and we're, we're promised that he'll write his laws on our hearts, and so the Holy Spirit is going to be that guiding, you know, conviction to keep us... The helper he leaves us with. That's right, know? yeah. So that makes sense to me that if you're going to lean, if you're going to trust in some outside source for your righteousness that you would deny an internal, you know, trinity, the the Holy Spirit. But what when it comes to the Jesus part, what how do they get to that point? What is what is that looking like? Well, typically the t- the path they'll take is um they become more and more Jewish. I, I don't have right. another way to say it. So and yeah. and uh, they'll they'll start to glom onto this idea that that first of all, they have a misunderstanding of the Trinity and they'll say God is one, you know, they'll talk about Mm, the, you know, the Shema. Yeah. you know, and so they'll defend the oneness of God and say, well, why we can't worship Jesus. That would be idolatry. Mm. Not understanding that, Hey, guess what? No Trinitarian in the world thinks there's more than one God. Okay. It's not what we think. So there's a misunderstanding there. They'll start to read scriptures. I had one guy quote to me, uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm the door to the father. So he he asked me, why would I worship the door? Wouldn't I just go to the father? And so there's, they start to doubt, they start to look at him as immortal. And I've even had discussions with Unitarians who don't believe in the Trinity Mm -hmm. and think that Jesus was a, you know, messianic figure and, Mm -hmm. but, but not partly God. And so there is a, and here's the other weird thing. I don't know if it goes hand in hand, but I've been getting so many questions lately about flat earth theology and why do so many Hebrew roots believe in flat earth? I've not talked to anyone that does, but it keeps, there's a, there's almost like a conspiracy mindset uh, that seems rampant on the fringes of this Torahism movement. Mm. And so I think part of it, and and I would readily admit that those who deny the deity of Christ are on the fringe. I, I think the majority of of Hebrew roots don't wouldn't deny that. I think they're they they take the mainstream position that Jesus was God incarnate and and all that and the Trinity is real and all that. So I don't want to paint the whole right yeah. movement, but yeah, there's definitely some folks enough that I thought I need to write a chapter about this, right. <laughs> two chapters about it. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and it's the progression of heresy, right? It just keeps moving forward into that. So let me ask you a question. This is kind of. Uh, in 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 off topic a little bit. Um, what is your what do you think about someone like Seventh Day Adventist with when it comes to the Sabbath and all of the way that they would their teachings are? Well, I'm not super deep on SDA theology. Okay. Um, I would so I can't speak to it with with much authority. Um, in general, I mean, I have I, I maintain my same belief that it's permitted but not required mm-hmm. um so seventh-day adventists i under, understand have some even weirder theology yeah. um yeah. but on the sabbath itself i'm fine with that if if it's an optional thing yeah okay. you know if but it, my understanding is that they require it of their members um i don't know if they think that if that's just hey you know a, a denominational requirement or if they think that's a, a theological requirement you know biblical requirement i'm not sure I know, I know, though, that in, from some of my studying, that Seventh-day Adventists and even Jehovah's Witnesses kind of grew out of the same root yes. that Hebrew roots came from in the late in the 1800s. Um, so, yeah, I, they're, I think they're cousins. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, my understanding, Seventh-day Adventists, if you do not worship on the Sabbath or if, yeah, if you don't worship on Saturday, 
as a Sabbath, um, then you are in sin and, and jeopardy of losing salvation. That's my okay. Well, then so, I think that's yeah. Obviously, I wouldn't agree with that. Yeah, man, that's uh, a. <laughs> it's interesting how these things twist and turn, and take someone off of this just wonderful, you know, grace of God that is offered to us free, with regardless of our, you know, we he comes to us all, and we all we you know we all come to to the to the throne of God through through Christ on no merit of our own. And then people yeah. want to add to that, you know, even not even in the Hebrew roots rooms, but I've seen this in other denominations as well, you know, with just different moralistic things that they attach mm-hmm. to, you know, what right. they, and uh, it's hard because grace is messy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people get, and on, it's scandalous. I mean, think about, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't, you can't really be giving me that for free. That just doesn't seem fair. Right. You know, that I think it, our human nature and it, you know what, it's not fair. It's not fair in our favor, Amen. but it just points out the uh, amazing holiness and mercy of God that he would do such a thing, which is, which is ridiculously loving mm-hmm. and, like I said, scandalous. So I think that's part of the problem. And, and so I really, uh, I really empathize with that and struggle sometimes my own self with that same thing. And maybe I think maybe all Christians do. What do I need to do to be a good person, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I see Hebrew roots as very much an outworking of that. And, and what, what sometimes happens, and I'm not sure why I'm still studying it quite a bit, but is that you get into these maybe personality types or something that find some level of identity Hmm. in the practices. Hmm. And then they go from that to, Oh my gosh, this is changing my world. I need to tell everyone about it. Okay. That's great. And then somehow along the way it morphs into, I need to make sure everyone does this Mm -hmm. and now, Oh, you're wrong if you don't do it. And so it becomes that slippery slope Hmm. um, of personal expression you know, next thing you know, you're you're uh, getting kicked out of your aunt's house because you won't stop talking about it. Um, yeah. And and I, I get so many I get so many uh, message. I, as a matter of fact, in the second edition of Toryism, I put a fairly long letter from from one of my readers that mm-hmm. just really cleanly explained how crazy it is to get into it. She married a guy and he became more and more, you know, and I hear this all the time in marriages, they become more and more strict to the point where the wife can't read the scripture and um, she's got to submit to the husband and it gets, and you start thinking, wait a second, this is beyond just wanting to celebrate the way Jesus did. Now we've morphed into some other weird thing. Um, And so that's why I say, I think it's at some level, it's a psychological commitment emotional commitment uh, more more so than a theological deduction mm-hmm. yeah yeah the identity part that really hits it right on the head i think mm-hmm. yeah you both find an identity in it and and it kind of morphs into an identity and here's the weird thing for me is that when you get to that point and i've talked to matter of fact when i was out at, at the um, messiah conference in pennsylvania i talked to a number of rabbis who run messianic synagogues who get gentiles that come in Mm -hmm. and they they talked about the same thing and so what's really interesting is you think to yourself okay and going back to first first corinthians 7 you know if you're a jew stay a jew if you're a gentile stay a gentile so what happens is you get these (laughs) i'm going to use this analogy and probably offend some people but (laughs) it's not unlike the transgender community where you somehow come to the conclusion or the feeling the overwhelming overwhelming desire that you know what? I'm a woman in a man's body or vice versa. Right. 
right? And so you start to, because that's what you identify with, that's part of your identity, you start to dress more like the other gender. And, and I guess in some, ta- in some cases, you take more drastic measures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're trying to uh, become the gender you identify with or feel like rather than the gender you were born as. And I think we can all agree that no one chose which gender they were going to be born. But, but here's the thing is that God chose your gender. He knew he, he picked that for a reason and you wanting to change it, um, is in a sense, you know, spitting in God's eye in a way. Mm -hmm. And so I see the same thing with Hebrew roots. They act like they are Jews trapped in a Gentile's body and they want to get out (laughs) and they want to, and they'll, they'll wear the tzitzit and they'll keep the Sabbath and eat kosher food and all that stuff as, as a sort of a cultural, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they identify with some other ethnicity essentially. And in both cases, I would say, hold on a second. God made you a Gentile. He made me a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. He made me a Gentile for a reason, and Gentiles have a part in God's family as much as the Jews do. Now, I, I do believe that the New Testament is pretty clear that the Jews have a certain priority status in a, in a sense. You know, the gospel is first to the Jew and also to the Gentile in Romans 1. And in Romans 2, it says that punishment or judgment comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Romans 11, talks about the, the, the Jews are going to be you know, kind of put out until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then then Israel's going to be saved. And so there's this distinction between Jew and Gentile all throughout the New Testament, even into into Revelation. You know, yeah. Revelation seven, you've got all those. It lists all the tribes of Israel, right? Yeah. Twelve thousand from each tribe. And then what does it say right below that? People from every tribe and nation and tongue are going to encircle the the throne of God and worship Him. Mm-hmm. So you've got this beautiful picture of unity but not uniformity mm-hmm. and so what that says to me is look if i'm born a gentile i have a role to play god god chose a role for me and i can be mm-hmm. as comfortable in that as the jewish person would be awesome. and some people and i and i i totally get this because i felt this way for a while myself i thought well wait a second i don't like being a second class citizen so to speak right. but as i thought about it it's not that's not an accurate way to to, to portray it. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about it this way, like in a marriage, which is the most important person, the husband or the wife? Right? And so, <laughs> right. so you say to yourself, well, hold on a second. <laughs> However, you might want to answer that. The fact is that if you don't have a husband and a wife, you don't have a marriage. Right. And I think the same thing is true of the body of Christ. If we don't have Jews and Gentiles, we don't have the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a place that we all have to, a role that we all have to play. And what I've heard from some of my rabbi friends, messianic rabbi friends, is that they feel like the Gentiles are almost ashamed, some, not everyone, some Gentiles are almost ashamed of being Gentile mm-hmm. and feel like the Jewish, they want to adopt all those Jewish practices because they feel like that's a, a more godly or something. And so a lot of times they have to say, look, it's no mistake that you're a Gentile. God knew it. <laughs> You know, they're trying to sneak closer to the throne. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but we all, yeah, we all have equal access now that the curtain's been torn down. Amen. Have you had anyone that in your ministry that has moved away from Huber Roots teaching into a more, you know, what I don't know what we would call it, grace? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've heard from a number of people who used to be in Hebrew Roots and, and kind of, in their words, came to their senses. One, one woman said, um, 
And what's interesting, because I've all, as soon as I hear that, I go, oh, tell me your story. You know, I'm so interested to see. And almost every, I would actually say every story I've heard personally was a process. It wasn't an event. It wasn't a eureka moment. It was a, um, you know, like Greg Kokel, the apologist talks about putting a stone in someone's shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you're not changing their whole life, but you're making their current walk less comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, you know, and, and sometimes, I mean, praise God that it can use a knucklehead like me, but sometimes the stuff that I've put out, they've said, you know what, the one thing you said, which to me would have been an offhanded comment, stuck in my mind. <laughs> and so I started researching and studying and, you know, two years later, uh, I, I thought, well, I'm going to go to a regular church as they call it, you know, and, uh, one of them called them normies, like nor- <laughs> normal people. Normie and, church. <laughs> yeah. And so the idea is to me that it's, you get into it slowly and you get out of it slowly. Mm. Um, and like I said, I, w- I was looking for that silver bullet for a long time before I realized it didn't exist. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But most of it is, first of all, loving them. I think love is a huge thing that mm-hmm. you're not not judging them. You didn't burn the bridges when you found out they're keeping Sabbath or they're not coming over for Christmas this year. Uh, you didn't burn the bridges. You maintained that relationship, but you also didn't um, you know, uh, sacrifice or compromise your own principles. Absolutely. You know? And it, it, it's difficult. I, I remember hearing from a woman whose whose daughter refused to come over for Christmas anymore, and it hurt her to the core. And I'm like, okay, I understand that, but she's an adult, and it's not. She's not breaking any commandments of God by not celebrating Christmas. Yeah. So there's there's some grace on both sides that need to be given. But if you have a thing, if you have a situation where you're maintaining a relationship and you're kind of speaking some truth into them, maybe sharing. Um, I don't know, my teachings or whoever, anyone else, Mike Winger's got some great stuff on Hebrew roots. There's another guy called, um, uh, what's it called? Wisdom. What's Drew's thing called? I have to look it up. Beginning of wisdom. It's called. Yeah. He's great too. He's got some great, uh, podcasts on Hebrew roots. So it gets people thinking, you just say one little thing and trust God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. No, that's, um, and, uh, you know, obviously th- there's, only so much we can get into uh, on an hour-long podcast, right, or however yeah. the long that we've been going for. That uh, <laughs> you know, by no means was this uh, intended to uh, completely. You know, someone that's deep into Hebrew roots. You know, like the family member that I have spoken about uh, off air. You know, I don't expect them to hear this and then all of a sudden be like, oh, yeah, the boom, 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 made those points done. I'm going to throw away my entire. Uh, identity ideology that uh has been cultivated and and it was um the same way i love that analogy we were talking about with the tranny i was about to say (laughs) trannies um that's not uh respectful but uh the transgenders and um I, i was thinking kind of in the same way uh especially nowadays that how about i'll say this is that being on the outside and hearing someone say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or uh, I'm, you know, a white guy, and I, I really feel like I'm supposed to be a Japanese woman, you know, that's who God meant me to be, and he just messed up. Um, it, it's tricky, because they have this, you know, like, for me, that sounds so absurd, you know, like, obviously, you're a man, you, you, God intended you to be a man, but I find it tricky. And, um, because not only 
are you fighting, not fighting against, uh, well, yeah, a kind of battle on an individual basis, I'll say, you know, within grace, within love, on an individual one-to-one basis, is it's not just this, uh, ex- you know, explaining how basic biology works or anything like that, because nowadays there's also, they can find the sense of community that backs up um, what they're saying. Right. And that's the thing that's... Uh, extremely um i don't want to say i'm you know anti-group as a group think as a whole because uh you know i obviously identify as a christian i obviously identify right you know with the right wing you know conservative you know that kind of thing there are ways that i can break that down but it you know to someone that may be hearing this that uh it, i understand that it's so tricky because like you had said that there's households that have this and they find community right. um, of people that reaffirm what they're saying and um, much in the same way the the people that I've encountered uh, in the Hebrew roots um, are the tourists or Messianic Jews or however they describe themselves it is there there is no humility uh, that I've encountered with this that it's always this greater than thou it's almost a um, I, I kind of, uh, I, I don't really want to say it this way, but there's like this, fer- uh, uh, this is a better way, a fervor the, of like, they are so uh, c- not committed to, but um, what's the word? They're, they're, um, I think the word you're looking for is pharisaic. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right, yeah. But there, it, yeah, there, there's, uh, they're just so committed to it and there, there is the community behind it and mm-hmm. that, that is so difficult, um, to, well, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. our, our, one of our deepest human needs is to belong. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I absolutely yeah. understand that. And, and I think that's, you know, finding your identity there, you could, you could do worse things than be in the Hebrew roots uh, community, you know, as long as you're worshiping Jesus. And like we talked about, you know, we don't know how much heresy gets you kicked out of heaven, but if you, if you have a genuine faith in Jesus, you're good. Um, But I think what I would say too, though, is, um, and this is what I'm trying to do with my ministry is to point out that there is a reasonable middle ground that mm-hmm. says you can do some of those things you can um acknowledge i've taken i've partook in a, a last year the passover seder amazing uh and i've been to a couple um services at a local messianic synagogue here in nashville uh just shabbat services so cool i loved it mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that but but what I, what i think we need to remember is that look our identity is in christ amen yeah. it's not it's not in the, the feasts that we celebrate, it's yeah. not in the, the Saturday Sabbath. And if those things, if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you into those things, I would never argue with someone that really felt drawn. I need to, I need to keep Shabbat starting sundown on Friday, and I feel like God wants me to do this. Okay, I absolutely respect that. And like I said, there's nothing wrong. It's never been prohibited or forbidden, but but I do see the same attitude you're talking about. I'll give you a little bit of hope in that some of the Hebrew roots folks I've talked to have been really quite kind and humble. Uh, And those have been just very enjoyable conversations, but it is a big problem. The Pharisaic 
um, holier than thou, you know, the, it always just reminds me of the Pharisee on the street corner saying, or whatever that, wherever he was saying, you know, thank God I'm not a Gentile or whatever. (laughs) Um, so, you know, if we're, if we're leaving humility behind, if the fruits of our working out of our faith is causing division, Mm -hmm. sometimes there, sometimes some of the folks that I've dealt with, especially the first couple that I ran into with this, they almost made it as a badge of honor that they were causing division in their family, feeling like they were putting it all on the line for the Lord, mm-hmm. right? And that's very wrong-headed mm-hmm. um, because they weren't uh, standing up against the world in defense of Jesus. They were offending their right. brothers and sisters and neighbors because of the Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. So. If we we need to keep that in perspective and remember that we can that that first of all our identity comes from who we are in Christ. We're we're mm-hmm. if you believe in Him, if your faith is in Him, you're a daughter or a son of the King Amen. of the universe. I mean that you can't. That's an amazing thing. You're part of God's family. Now, how you work out your identity within God's family. God gives us freedom in in Jesus. Again, I mentioned that before. I love the idea of unity, but not uniformity. Right. We don't all yeah. need to worship God the same way. Um, and so, I would encourage people to feel free to exercise some of that. Absolutely learn about the feasts, learn about God's calendar, learn about the kosher food laws, and why he did all that stuff is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't. But make sure that the fruits of what you're doing aren't causing abrasion and division and turmoil and stress um needlessly you know what i mean yeah that that's that's a big thing yeah man dude this has been an awesome conversation yeah uh i I have so many other i could go for another hour (laughs) but we've held you for an hour over an hour now and um and we'll have to do a part two then yeah, we, yeah, maybe absolutely. we should. I, I, yeah, well, we say this to a lot of our guests. You, you have an open door. You're welcome here. <laughs> um, I, uh, I just really appreciate what you do, Rob. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your book. Oh, I thank you so much. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm going to pick up some of your other books, and I will. You know, if you're still listening, we're going to put all your links to your YouTube and and your book on Amazon, everything else uh, on our show notes, so people can go buy it. Yeah, There's go so buy much it. in it, and it's 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 an amazing resource that. Uh, Uh, there's nothing wrong with being prepared for something that you haven't encountered yet. Right. Yeah. 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 It's just a matter of time. It's interesting too. If, if I, if you don't mind one other benefit that I didn't really um, think about, but I'm sure God knew about it (laughs) in the writing of my book. I mean, as you, you've been through it. So it's really like a wide ranging theological treatise on, uh, on not only you know, what Hebrew roots kind of gets wrong, but it's what is right. So right. there's a there's a sense of one of the big reasons that Hebrew roots and Torahism is gaining uh, traction is because of the lack of biblical literacy in our churches. Yeah. And so if you don't know better, then this stuff sounds really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're pulling out the same Bible and talking about the same God. And so it's, uh, you know, unless unless you have some semblance of, just basic theology understanding, uh, it's easy to get, um, you know, misled. So that's, I think one of the advantages one, one guy told me I've never dealt with tourism, but I learned a lot about my own faith by reading your book, which is kind of a cool Mm. byproduct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were warned that these things would happen. You know, uh, there's many warnings in scripture about different, you know, various, uh, you know, things that are going to rise up within the body of Christ. And uh, some are without, you know, coming from the outside, and some are from within. 
And um, so this seems to be something that can start from within and really pull someone out, you know. Yeah. But I really do appreciate your your YouTube channel, your books, and your spending time with us here on the podcast. And um, and you know we're going to continue to pray for you and and point people your direction. If I meet someone that has questions I can't answer, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feel free to do that. That's kind of that's where God's got me right now. So I'm happy to happy to help and just just thrilled to have had a chance to talk to you guys. Yeah, and I would just uh, make an appeal to anyone listening right now, just humbly, I would say that go ahead and check out the YouTube, listen to some of his YouTube, you know, the topics that he breaks down and and they're they're bite-sized, you know, they're 20 30 minutes, they're not long and they're very concise and and uh, measure yourself against those. See if perhaps what you're beginning to lean into is something that is presenting itself that could be a dangerous pathway yeah. that's leading to something that would pull away from the grace of God and the and standing with um you know what we what we would call you know orthodox Christianity in the sense of you know the the biblical standard yeah. so um I would just ask that or any of our listeners you know go ahead and try that and check it out <laughs> yeah. so but uh man Ra we love you and we appreciate you and um you guys are awesome. Thank you. We'll, we'll definitely have you back uh, sometime in the future. We'll stay in touch, and um, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. All right. Th- yeah, thanks, guys. Bless you. Thank you, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. If you had a blast, then we'd love to have you back for another episode. So please subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram at All Out War Podcast or on Twitter at AOWcast. These episodes are also available on YouTube unless they contain a little too much truth. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.